0: fellow travelers, vagrants, explorers, wildlanders, and welcome to episode 39 of the Retro Wildlands. My name is Nomad and this is my gaming podcast where I like to share my thoughts and experiences with a video game that I have discovered or rediscovered while roaming the gaming wildlands. Thank you very much for tuning into the show today. If you've been with us on one of our expeditions into the wildlands before, I am very glad that you are back. If this is your first time with us, let me extend a warm welcome. I'm really glad that you found us, and I hope you stick around. Dee Dee, our canine expedition leader, will be around momentarily to greet you all by administering the traditional sniffing of the leg, but at the moment he's a little tied up over there counting his latest stack of cold hard cash. What is a dog doing with a pile of money, you might be wondering, and more importantly, how is he able to count it without any thumbs? Well, I can't answer that last question, but as far as where the money came from, Dee Dee has joined up with a mercenary outfit and is raking in the cash hand over paw. Now, if you're anything like me, the prospect of making money is always intriguing, so I've decided to sign up the expedition as a whole for some side work. The only thing is, though, this sort of work is going to see us soaring high up into the clouds our reflexes will need to be fine-tuned, and our trigger fingers will need to be in tip-top shape. On today's episode, we're going to be checking out a game that I often see pretty high up on lists of the best Super Nintendo games out there, but I really don't hear anyone talking about it very much. It's a side-scrolling shooter, or shoot 'em up or shmup, or whatever you want to call it, that is incredibly fun to play and brings a hearty challenge to the table as well. It has an awesome visual and audio presentation, and a fantastic gameplay loop. It was also based on a Japanese manga series that originally ran way back in the day. Back in the day meaning between 1979 and 1986. Today on the podcast, we're going to be talking about a little game called UN Squadron. I can't remember what publication it was, but I have vague memories of reading about this game when I was younger. Maybe it was in Nintendo Power Magazine, I am not entirely sure, but what I remember sticking with me was the core concept of this game. As the screen scrolled from left to right, you take control of one of several aircraft and your mission is to destroy anything that gets in your way. It was pretty standard fare as far as shoot-'em-ups go, but there were two things that always caught my attention. First, you could purchase special weapons and new aircraft by earning money as you play. You gained money by defeating enemies and using it to upgrade your capabilities as you went. That concept right there just blew my mind as a kid. And second, the aircraft you could purchase looked like they were either inspired by real world aircraft or they were real world aircraft. It all started when I was little, but to this day, my favorite movie is Top Gun. I love the film, I've never gotten tired of it, and because of that, the F-14 Tomcat that's prominent in the film has become one of my favorite real-world aircraft. As soon as I saw that you could purchase this specific aircraft in the game and use it, I knew UN Squadron was a game that I needed to play. But alas, it was never meant to be. I never did get it on my Super Nintendo growing up, and I forgot all about it as I grew into adulthood. UN Squadron and its memory just faded away. That is, until I saw it mentioned in passing on a YouTube video I watched about a year or so ago. This game is widely considered to be one of the best games on the Super Nintendo, but I would never really heard or saw anyone talking about this one. So finally, as a tired middle-aged man, I finally gave this game a go last month. Is this game as good as the lists say it is? Did I enjoy UN Squadron as much as I was hoping? Well, get comfortable by the campfire, my friends. I'm eager to talk to you about a game that many seem to praise, but few seem to want to talk about. Now if you're new to the show, I like to kick things off by chatting it up with you all for a little bit and giving you all a peek behind the scenes here in the Retro Wildlands before getting into the episode proper. Depending on what's on my mind, I like to talk about what's going on with the podcast itself, what games I'm playing, what's going on in my life, any projects I'm working on, and whatever else pops up. I'll also read and respond to any comments that I received about the game that we're talking about, if I happen to receive any, when I put a call out on our social media pages. Now, if none of this interests you and you just came here for my UN Squadron thoughts, you can just skip ahead about five to seven minutes. I'll also have timestamps loaded into the show's description if you want to know exactly where you need to go. But feel free to stick around. Let's spend a little time checking in and getting settled in our intro segment that I like to call Campfire Ketchups. So things around the retro wild lands remain busy as usual. The weather is getting nicer here in Ohio, and that means my family and I have been trying to get out and about whenever we can. My wife and I took the kids to a zoo one weekend and had a bonfire another weekend, so overall it's been a good couple weeks since we caught up last, and I am always grateful for the time I get to spend with family and friends. Over on our social media pages, I continue to find myself getting into some pretty good conversations with some of you fine people as well, and while I love playing video games, I love talking about them almost just as much. So a huge thank you to anyone who's taken time out of their day to say hello to me or chat it up for a bit. I really enjoy our conversations. As far as the podcast itself goes, things are moving along fairly well-ish. For those that don't know, I am a 38-year-old husband and stepfather, and I work a salary job where I'm putting in between 40 to 50 hours a week, depending on the workload. While I'm not able to devote as much time to the podcast and the Retro Wildlands brand as I would like to lately, the time I have been spending has been pretty fun for me, and it's incredible to look back on and see all that we've built so far. My primary focus continues to be on making and creating quality episodes of the show, but I can't help but think about the little projects that I'm working on or want to start working on. Before starting this podcast, I thought about creating YouTube content in the form of video game reviews or discussionary topics. And while I settled on the podcast as the flagship piece of content that I'm putting out, I keep going back to YouTube as a way to expand the brand and just do something a little different in conjunction with. A little over a month ago I created a video review of an awesome indie game you should try called Thy Sword, and I was extremely happy with how the video itself actually turned out. The whole process ignited a spark in me, and I want to keep uploading smaller video reviews like that. I'm currently playing another game on my Nintendo Switch that I think will make a really good video review, so be on the lookout for that sometime soon. So all that said, I've been dinking around with some ideas that I can post on YouTube. Nothing is really stuck, but it's not for lack of trying. If nothing else, I'm still slowly uploading our back catalogue of podcasts over on YouTube so people can listen to it over there. Now outside of just making episodes and trying to grow the show, this year I'm trying to get out a little bit more and visit some more gaming conventions. I don't think I'm to the point that I can make any out-of-Ohio conventions, but we'll see what happens. Last year, I went to the TORG Gaming Expo in Columbus, Ohio, and it was my very first gaming convention. It was a fantastic time, and I got a chance to meet some pretty cool people and find some gems for my growing gaming collection. This year, I am happy to say that I will be going back to TORG on November 11th and 12th, and I am pretty excited for that. I'm also going to be checking out the Cleveland Gaming Classic the weekend of September 22nd in Cleveland, Ohio. This particular convention really looks like a good time, and I cannot wait to see what this one is all about. I'm still relatively new to these sorts of things, so I figure a couple of conventions this year is the right number for me. While I can be pretty personable and an outgoing person in general, places with really big crowds have never really been something that I gravitate towards. Now don't get me wrong, conventions and music concerts, for instance, are absolutely awesome and I love going, but they can sap my energy pretty quick. I'm hoping this year I can break out of my shell a little bit by hitting up a few cons this year. Now to be clear, I am not going to these conventions as a guest or a headlining event or anything like that. I am not nearly as popular as I need to be for anything like that. But I will be meandering around the floor looking for a good time and looking for a good deal. So if you happen to be at those particular conventions and you happen to see me, do not hesitate to stop by and say hi. I will be wearing my custom-made Retro Wildlands hoodie while spreading the gospel that is our expedition. I am curious what your thoughts are on gaming conventions and get-togethers in general, so hit me up on social media if you care to share your thoughts. In other news, I was able to get my hands on one of my Holy Grail items the other day, and I want to brag about it a little bit. Back when the PlayStation 3 launched, the consoles themselves were originally backwards compatible with PlayStation 1 and PlayStation 2 games. The console itself was huge and could probably be used to knock out a bear if one was getting too aggressive. Eventually, that backwards compatibility was phased out and the console itself changed over time. Late in the PlayStation 3's life cycle, I got myself a slim version at my local GameStop for fairly cheap but now that I'm collecting games pretty seriously now, having an old PlayStation 3 that can play my back catalog of PS2 and PS1 games just makes sense. Especially since I've been trying to capture gameplay footage of most of the games that I play. I wasn't really looking for one, but Duck Duck Games in Monroe Falls, Ohio just happened to come across one, and it was in pretty damn good condition. Even under the hood, it was looking really, really good. So that said, I decided to pull the trigger on one, and I have to say, I am very happy with this thing. I think I like it best for the PlayStation 2 compatibility. Some of the games in my collection, like The Punisher, Max Payne, and Resident Evil Outbreak, for instance, look really good and play incredibly smooth on this system. Plus, recording gameplay is so much easier than off the PlayStation 2 where I had to use an HDMI output adapter, just be able to get the footage on my computer where it didn't really look all that great anyway. And I know there's a ton of graphic upscalers out there, but I don't have too much extra money to throw around for stuff like that. I've just made what I have work, and I'm completely fine with that, but now... I finally have something that's going to make my life a little easier, and I can't help but look at it in awe, because it looks sexy as hell in my collection. So beyond just bragging about this awesome thing that I have in my collection now, the reason I wanted to bring it up is because this thing will now give me more capacity to play different games, specifically for the podcast. Of all the games that I'm focusing my collection on, PlayStation 1 and PlayStation 2 games are the ones that I'm slowly bringing back into my physical game collection. So if there's any games from the PlayStation 1, 2, or 3 era that you think would make a good show here on the podcast, reach out to me on social media and let me know. It's not going to guarantee that I'll focus specifically on those games, but I really would like to know what it is that you'd love to hear me talk about, or if nothing else, just tell me about a game that you think I should have in my collection, and I'm all about adding it. And if you do have something that you want me to cover on the show or just check out in general, be sure to reach out to us over on social media. We have a presence over on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and even YouTube as well if you search at Retro Wildlands. I also created a Linktree for the show, so you can actually go there and find all of our social links in one place. I'm not sure if Linktree is a new thing, or if I'm super late to the party, or if no one even cares about this particular party, but either way, check us out at linktr.ee slash retrowildlands to gain access to our one-stop shop for social activity. Alright, I think that is enough rambling and self-pleasure for one episode. It is time to switch gears and get to the reason that you're all here today. It is time to talk about UN Squadron on the Super Nintendo. Developed by Capcom and originally released in August 1989 as an arcade game, then later ported to several other home consoles including the Super Nintendo in September of 1991, UN Squadron puts you in the role of one of three characters from Area 88, the manga that inspired it. Taking control of series characters such as Greg Gates, Mickey Simon, and Shin Kazama, we are tasked with bringing down a terrorist group known only as Project 4. While the game looks and plays like your typical side scrolling shoot em up, the unique gameplay mechanics that are present in this game make it a step above all the rest. What are those gameplay mechanics, and how is this game consistently found on several top 100 best NES games of all time lists? I think at long last it is time to give UN Squadron its day in the spotlight so we can all find out. So gear up, Wildlanders. Grab your preferred aircraft, outfit it with your preferred special weapon loadout, and strap yourselves in. Project 4's superior numbers and overwhelming firepower give them the advantage But we have the skill, we have the superior aircraft, and we have the special weapons needed to turn the tide of battle in our favor… just so long as we can rake in enough money to buy it all. So I'm sure I mentioned it at least once or twice on past episodes of the show, but my favorite movie of all time is the 1986 classic Top Gun. When I was growing up, I would watch Top Gun over and over again. I was too young to really understand what was going on in the movie itself, but I wasn't there for the plot. I was there for all the dogfighting and the high-flying action scenes. It was just so cool to me, and I often pictured myself in the cockpit of an F-14 Tomcat, dodging missiles and gunfire while I maneuvered on the enemy and sent them into oblivion with my superior dogfighting skills. Because of this and the movie, the F-14 Tomcat itself became my favorite video game aircraft, and it still is to this day. If you can't picture it in your head, it's the one where the wings on either side would swoop out or swoop back to allow for more maneuverability. But as I got older and consumed more movies and video games, my love for the Tomcat never waned. When it came to video games specifically, I would gravitate towards any that just so happened to have me pilot a Tomcat. The Afterburner arcade games were a great example. In those games, you're flying at breakneck speeds while you're piloting an F-14 Tomcat. You're doing barrel rolls and launching missiles, all while avoiding incoming enemy fire. I was never really great at Afterburner, and I still suck at it today, but that never stopped me from playing it. But one day I found myself reading a gaming magazine and I came across another game that caught my eye. One that I could play in the comfort of my own home on my Super Nintendo, and it was one where I could fly my beloved F-14 Tomcat on missions to take down enemies and save the world. Now, I can't remember for certain, but I'm pretty sure it was an issue of Nintendo Power that had a spread on UN Squadron. Even before I realized I could pilot a Tomcat in the game, it immediately grabbed my attention. You flew a plane on screen as it scrolled from left to right, and you took out the bad guys in the process. Up to that point, I really hadn't played any shooters that I can recall, but I could immediately tell that this was one that was going to be something special. As you played the game, shot down enemies, and completed levels, you gained money that you could use to purchase new aircraft to fly, and you could also buy special weapons. It sounds pretty basic by today's standards, but the idea of flying 6 different aircraft and potentially bringing 11 special weapons into battle got me pretty excited. My young imagination ran wild with the possibilities, and I knew I wanted to give this game a try. But, sadly, I was never able to play this game growing up. It was never gotten for me on any of my birthdays, and eventually I just forgot about this one. A couple years later, I would get my hands on Star Fox for the Super Nintendo, and that more than scratched my itch for a high-flying shooter. It wasn't an F-14 Tomcat that I was flying, but that was okay. I could still pretend I was Maverick as I flew my R-Wing into outer space. But one day as an adult, I was reminded that UN Squadron existed and I knew I had to get my hands on it and I finally played through it. As I researched this game a little bit before I actually sat down with it, I found that this game would find its way into several top 50 or top 100 Super Nintendo games of all time lists. So there must be something fun here, right? Well I finally played this game through and I have to say, it was a wild ride. I had a lot of fun with this one, hence why I want to talk about it, but more than that, I don't really see people bringing this game up a lot, so I felt like it was my duty to spread the word. So with all of that said, I think it's time to tear into this game and see exactly what it is that we are working with. So, what is this game? UN Squadron is a side-scrolling shooter shoot-'em-up, shmup, or whatever. Players take control of an aircraft, and you use said aircraft to shoot at enemies on screen as the screen automatically scrolls to the right. You'll play through multiple levels, all of which have the same objective. Make it to the end without dying, kill the boss at the end of the stage, collect money, buy weapons and aircraft, repeat. But this game is much more than that. Before we dive into the game mechanics, I want to talk about this game's story a bit as well as its background. So this game was originally released in Japan and it went by the name Area 88. Area 88 was actually a Japanese manga series that ran from 1979 to 1986. Both the Japanese game and the one released here in North America are based on that manga. The only exception being is instead of calling it Area 88 in the States here, we decided to call it UN Squadron for reasons unknown. Now, the manga itself stars Shin Kazama, an ace pilot who is stationed at a remote airbase known as Area 88. The government is using mercenary pilots to fight their wars, and the mercenaries at Area 88 are bound to a three-year contract of servitude. Pilots that are a part of Area 88 can't willingly leave before their term is up, lest they be punished by death, but they can, however, buy out their contracts for the low, low price of 1.5 million US dollars. As an incentive of service, the government pays pilots cold hard cash for every enemy they shoot down or target that they destroy. Shin Kazama makes it his mission to scrape together as many kills as he can so he can buy out his contract and return home to his fiance in Japan. Along the way, Shin befriends a few companions at Area 88, including Mickey Simon, a former U.S. Navy pilot and Vietnam War veteran, Greg Gates, a Danish mercenary with an uncanny ability to get out of even the most dangerous of situations, And McCoy, Area 88's merchant who sells weapons, equipment, and even aircraft. The plot of the manga and the plot of the video game are pretty similar, even if the game just uses the plot as a very, very basic setup. Sometime during Shin Kazama's time as part of Area 88, a ruthless army of mercenaries swept across the kingdom of Aslan Aslan, and destroyed everything in their path, just as your standard villains do. An arms dealer group known as Project 4 is responsible for outfitting these mercenaries, and the enemy now controls practically every part of the country with the exception of the tiny little piece of desert where Area 88 resides. The finest pilots still left in Area 88, which include Shin, Mickey, and Greg, form the UN Squadron. For several months, our heroes have been biding their time, waiting for the moment to strike back at Project 4. But now that you and I have come along, dear listener, and slotted the UN Squadron cartridge into our Super Nintendo, that time is now. Now, while I have some manga and anime that I am certainly a fan of, I am not an expert. Truthfully, I've never even heard of the Area 88 manga series, and if you haven't before, that is perfectly okay. UN Squadron is an old video game that has very little room for story and character development, so knowing or not knowing the manga series does nothing for the overall gameplay experience. I mean, I'm sure it is really cool to see some characters on screen that you might know from your time with the manga, but that is really as far as it goes. So I say that to say, don't think if you don't know the manga that you're not going to have a lesser experience here. Okay, so now that we've covered a bit of the background story and the overall setup, it's time we pop UN Squadron into our Super Nintendo and talk about the visual presentation, then get into the gameplay, when we take on a level of the game so we can experience it firsthand and get a feel for what it's like to take some targets out and earn some extra scratch. When we slide the game into our SNES and power it on, we're met with an opening cinematic that perfectly sets the tone of the game and shows off the graphical presentation in glorious fashion. On screen, we see the words, The fighting in this area is ferocious. We're shown the image of an eye slowly opening, you know, in that, I'm a badass and I've got a job to do, sort of slowness. It's very much an anime-looking eye, and if you happen to know the history of the Area 88 manga, you'll recognize this eyeball as Shin Kazamas. He is the one that's speaking to us here. He then says on screen, • Only fate will determine if we live or die. • Meters and gauges are shown on screen, as if powering up and coming to life. • Only a madman would take on this mission. Lucky they found me. We see Shin decked out in his flight gear, fully seated in the cockpit of his aircraft. From here, the screen transitions to a first-person view of sorts and we're shown traveling down a long runway. The Super Nintendo's Mode 7 graphics are on full display here as the runway zips by by giving off a 3D sort of look. Without cutting the image, the view of the runway shifts to the side, and we get to see Shin's F-8E Crusader gaining speed and taking off. After a flash of white, we see the UN Squadron logo, which is the head of a unicorn whose mane is on fire. Yes, it is as awesome as it sounds. From here, we can start the game or we can check out the options menu. I don't know about you all, but anytime I start a new game for the first time, I jump headfirst right into the options menu to see what levers and dials I can tweak and mess around with. In this options menu, you can mess around with the sound and tweak the controls a little bit, but more important than both of those is the difficulty setting that you can toggle. Now I want to make something abundantly clear as we start our journey into the UN Squadron gameplay experience. This game is fucking hard. This game is very fucking hard. This game is extremely fun, and I've always had a blast playing it, but be prepared to die often. Which is why I recommend dialing this experience down to the easiest difficulty for your first playthrough. I can't really tell you what making the game easy actually changes since the game is still stupid hard on the easiest setting, but change it anyway. If I had to guess, I think bullets fly a little bit slower at you and enemies don't move quite as fast, but that's just an assumption. Now, I don't claim to be the most skillful gamer or anything like that, and it might just be me. I may just still suck at video games, but do yourself a favor and change the difficulty to easy. You will thank me later. Once we're done in the options screen dinking around, it's time for us to set off on our mission. Back on the main menu, we select Game Start. And we're off. From here, we're introduced with a choice of pilots. Series star Shin Kazama is one of the playable pilots, along with Mickey Simon and Greg Gates. All the pilots control the same, but each brings something different to the gameplay experience. Playing as Shin will allow you to upgrade your standard attack much quicker than the other pilots, giving him a very early edge in battle. Simon has an edge when it comes to special weapons. You can bring more along with you in battle than the other pilots. Greg, on the other hand, recovers from taking damage much quicker than the other pilots, making him a little tougher to kill. When I played through the game to completion, I found that Greg's ability to recover from damage quickly typically was the key to my survival, so I tend to favor him over the other two pilots. We'll get into the mechanics of taking damage a little later, but regardless of who we pick, we make our selection and press on. From here, we're taken to the Mission Select screen. It's more or less a top-down, tactical view of an area of land. Off to the left is Area 88, the one small piece of land that's not controlled by the enemy. From here, we have to choose a target that we want to attack, and by doing so, we'll enter a stage and have to play through it. At first, though, only one stage is available to us. As we play through and conquer areas on the map, more land will be retaken and we can slowly push our way to the project or base that's all the way to the right side of the map. Seems simple enough, right? Since we only have one option for now, we select it. After we select the stage, we're taken to a screen where we need to select the aircraft that we want to take into battle. You'll notice right away that the only fighter that's available to use is the F-8E Crusader. There are five other aircraft that we can choose, but we can only choose them after we purchase them. Underneath the names of the aircraft, we have a dollar amount. Now, part of what makes UN Squadron such a fun game to play is the idea that you can accumulate cash as you accomplish missions and take down enemies, and just like the Area 88 manga series, pilots can then take that money and use it towards purchasing aircraft or other weapons and expanding your offensive capabilities. Each aircraft you fly has a standard-issue weapon, but for a monetary fee, you can load it up with special weapons and make your fighter a force to be reckoned with. Now I don't want to get into the nitty gritty of all the aircraft you can choose, but what you need to know is some fighters are faster than others, and some aircraft can equip some special weapons that others cannot. For example, my personal favorite fighter, the F-14 Tomcat, is the fastest moving aircraft in the game. It is designed to excel in air-to-air combat operations, so all of the special weapons that you can equip are focused on airborne targets. So while you can use it against ground-based enemies, it will be at a significant disadvantage. The A-10A Thunderbolt is the polar opposite of the Tomcat. It focuses more on ground-based special weapons. Arguably the best aircraft out of all of them is the one that costs a cool $1,000,000 to unlock, and that is the Soviet F-200 Efrit. While it's not nearly the fastest fighter in the game, it can equip every single special weapon in the game all at once, so long as you have enough money to buy them all. It's going to be up to you to fly all of these aircraft and figure out which ones work best in certain stages. Generally speaking, you can get through this game with pretty much any aircraft you want with the exception of one stage where I argue you need the F-200 or the YF-23 Stealth Ray, which has special weapons that shoot straight up. There's a boss in this stage that is practically unbeatable without vertically firing weapons, but we'll come back to this a little later. I have a major bone to pick with this design choice. But anyway, we select the F-8E Crusader since it's our only option. Now we're almost ready to take on our first mission, but before we do, we have to outfit our fighter with any special weapons that we want to take into battle. On the next screen, we can see the 11 special weapon icons that are available to us. But not all special weapons can be equipped on all fighters. For the Crusader, only three are available to purchase. The Cluster, which encircles your aircraft with explosive rings, Bombs, which are conventional bombs that fall straight downwards and explode on impact, and the Mega Crush, which is a high-altitude missile that shoots down lasers, hitting all targets on screen. It's basically the fuck-everything button. Under each special weapon is a dollar amount. If you want to take this special weapon into combat, you have to buy it. Each special weapon only comes with so many uses as well, so you have to be mindful of that. Buying a special weapon does not mean that you own it forever. You need to buy a special weapon every time you embark on a mission, so if you decide to get yourself killed before you complete a level, you'll lose all the money that you put into those special weapons and you'll have to purchase them again. So that being said, while it makes sense to load up on every single special weapon you can, think about only taking what you think you might need and actually use. Now the special weapons in UN Squadron really add to the overall gameplay experience and personally I found them to be one of the best features in the entire game. Taking special weapons with you into each stage allows you to play each stage a bit differently and adds a sort of replay value to the whole experience. In most shoot 'em up games that I've personally played, you really only have one main weapon that becomes stronger as you play or you pick up limited-use special weapons during gameplay as power-ups. In UN Squadron, you have the freedom to outfit your fighter however you want as long as you have the money to spend and your aircraft has the capacity to equip those weapons. It really gives you that feeling of battle preparation and really puts a weight behind your decisions. You're not just going through the motions here, your decisions actually have impact on the missions that you're going to partake in. Some of my favorite special weapons include the Phoenix missiles, which are your standard fire and forget air to air missiles that lock on and take out targets. I also like the Gun Pod weapon, which using this will allow you to fire a high powered Vulcan cannon diagonally upwards and to the right. And the cluster weapon is probably the one weapon that I always take with me. It is great for clearing out enemies that are getting too close, and it's just a type of weapon that seems to have a use in almost any scenario. Alright, I think that's more than enough setup. It's time to get on mission. Since we only start with $3,000, the only weapon that we can really afford right now is the cluster. I think it's worth buying, so let's buy it and take it with us, and let's head out. When the stage opens up, we can see our fighter on the left side of the screen. Like most shoot 'em ups using the directional pad will move us around. Pressing the Y button on our SNES controller will shoot our primary weapon, the Vulcan Cannon. We can hold the button down for repeat fire, but eventually the bullets will stop and we'll have to let go and press the Y button again. I recommend tapping the Y button in most cases. Now at the bottom of the screen, we can see what special weapon that we currently have equipped. The cluster is currently showing with a number 3 next to it. This means that we have three uses of the cluster before it's gone. Pressing the B button on our controller uses our equipped special weapon, but if we need to select one of the other ones that we have in our loadout, we can press the X button. If we don't have any other special weapons or we have no special weapons on hand, that button does nothing. Anyway. Now, here's one of the shortfalls of this game. You can only cycle your special weapons one at a time, and only in one direction. If you have more than two special weapons equipped, you'll need to cycle through one at a time, and if you accidentally go past the one that you want, you'll have to cycle through all of your choices all over again. It's not the worst thing in the world, and it's kind of a small nitpick, but it is still a nitpick nonetheless. But anyway, that there is the general control scheme. Not much to really figure out and it's a good thing because our first of many targets is currently making their way on screen. From the top right of the screen, a few enemy helicopters come in and maneuver towards us. All it takes is one shot from our primary weapon and they are toast. You'll notice these guys move pretty fast and you better get used to this. Most enemies are pretty mobile in this game, and it pays to pay attention. As you take out enemies, you'll start to accumulate more cash to line your pockets. And while it's not mandatory to take out every single target, the idea that you're going to get paid is a great incentive to find ways to take everybody out on screen. It actually makes the gameplay experience pretty fun. Personally, I've never been one to want to chase a high score or anything, but in UN Squadron, your efforts turn into tangible gains, so it's a great reason to put yourself at risk a little bit and try to bank some coin. Once the last helicopter is down, you'll notice a floating orange power-up of sorts floating on the screen. Flying into this power-up will have you collect it. Power-ups like these are ones that you'll need to collect in order to upgrade your primary weapon. At the top right-hand side of the screen, you'll notice a number under the word POW, and a number under the word Total. The number under POW is how many power-ups you need to collect in order to level up your primary weapon. Your total is how many power-ups that you've collected over the course of the game. The cool thing about this game feature is that, even if you lose a life in combat, the amount of power-ups that you've collected won't reset or go down. The same goes for the amount of cash that you've collected. While you may lose the money you spend on special weapons that went down with you and your aircraft in that fiery crash, even failing a level still means that you're progressing and I absolutely appreciated the game for this. As the level progresses onwards, you'll start to encounter ground units such as gun turrets and tanks. Even though we're in the very first level of the game, this is where things can become pretty difficult for the player. Since your aircraft's primary weapon only fires straight out in front, you'll need to maneuver your fighter all the way down to the ground in order to hit these targets. All the while, helicopters are still coming towards you from above. When the helicopters and gun turrets fire at you, they'll let loose a few glowing bullets that'll speed towards you. And while this is pretty standard for a shoot-em-up, you'll find that enemies will unleash bullets at you rather sporadically and sometimes when they're really close to you, giving you very little time to maneuver out of the way. I can almost guarantee that you are going to take a hit in this opening level. Speaking of, while we're taking on the ground units here, enemy helicopters have let loose a salvo of gunfire from above. This is usually the point in the level where I take a hit if I'm not 100% in tune with what's happening around me. And speaking of taking a hit, this is a great time to mention one of UN Squadron's more unique game mechanics. In most shoot-'em-ups, or at least the ones that I've played, all it typically takes is one hit to your aircraft and you are toast. In this game, however, you actually have a life meter and you can sustain multiple hits before actually being shot down. It's a fantastic change of pace here, and it allows you to press on even after making a mistake or if you weren't paying attention to incoming fire. Now what will happen is, when you take damage, your life bar, or your fuel gauge as the instruction booklet calls it, will deplete all the way and the word danger will flash on screen. After a couple seconds, danger will go away and your life bar will return, less the amount of damage that you just took. As long as you have some health, you'll be able to sustain more hits and press on. The thing that you have to keep in mind here is that, if your life bar is flashing danger and you sustain a hit before your life bar recovers, you are done no matter how much damage that you still have left to take. So you need to avoid enemy damage while you wait for your life bar to refill. Eventually, you will take enough hits where your life bar is so low that you're in a constant state of danger, so you just have to bear that in mind as well. Really, I think this is a pretty awesome idea as a whole. Cause like I mentioned before, I am not the most skillful gamer out there, so a lifebar system like this allows for a few missteps in levels and the ability to press on, which is awesome. Now at the end of each stage, we'll be put face to face against a boss enemy. Typically it's a larger enemy unit that's going to take on multiple hits before going down, but in some instances you may be taking on some pretty big enemies such as a fortress or an aircraft carrier that happens to be rolling around on the ground. You know, standard things like that. At the end of this stage, we're going to find ourselves face-to-face with a large ground-based multi-rocket launcher tank. Like most of the bosses in this game, this enemy follows a bit of an attack pattern which you'll need to be on the lookout for if you want to have a chance of winning the day. This one will shoot a barrage of fast-moving missiles from its launcher, all while firing smaller missiles that will hone in on your aircraft. You have to make sure that you're constantly moving, but not put yourself in the way of the larger missiles while you're trying to dodge the smaller ones. When you attack any boss in this game, sometimes they'll have weak points that you need to hit in order to do damage to them. If you hit an enemy's weak point, you'll know this when the entire boss flashes with each hit. Luckily for us, this enemy can be hit anywhere, so really all we need to do for our first boss encounter is not let up on the trigger and just dodge around the incoming missiles chasing us down. Now there is a good chance that you're probably going to get shot down here while you learn the boss's attack pattern, and that is okay. While losing a life certainly sucks, you'll still be able to keep all of your money, and you'll still hang on to all the power-ups that you've grabbed that go towards making your Vulcan Cannon stronger. So even though you just died and lost a life, it's not a total loss. Once we deal enough damage to the tank boss, its upper half explodes, and the lower half is engulfed in flames. The screen fades a bit and we're given a small boost to our score, but more importantly, we are given $50,000 in a cash payout for our troubles. Plus, any clusters that we didn't use along the way are returned and we receive cash back for them, which is pretty neat. Once we pocket our spoils, we're treated with a very quick victory scene and a snappy one-liner from our chosen pilot. After the stage is complete, we'll be taken back to the briefing screen, and the first thing we'll notice while looking at the map is that by completing the first stage, more stages are now open for us to select. This right here is where the game really starts to get going, because now we're given a little bit of freedom with regards to how we go about tackling the game. You're not really going to get an indication as to what challenges await you in each stage until you give it a whirl, but that's almost part of the fun. Several stages have you tackle a specific point on the tactical map, but you're also going to see some of Project 4's forces moving along the map as well. There will be at least two air-based enemy squadrons flying towards Area 88, as well as a submarine that likes to stick its head up every now and then. You as the player can decide to take on the main missions, or you can divert and take out the advancing enemy forces. If you decide to ignore the advancing enemy units, though, eventually they'll make it to Area 88 and you'll be forced to fend them off, so just bear that in mind. There are also supply trucks that will sometimes appear on the map as well. These missions have you making attack runs on an enemy convoy of trucks. The missions themselves are pretty simple, and if you can destroy the convoy in the time limit, you'll bank a cool $25,000 for your troubles. Trucks will spawn on the map fairly frequently, so they make a pretty quick payday if you're low on funds or you want a low-risk way to save some cash for your next aircraft purchase. Though these missions do get pretty boring pretty quickly. As you play through the game, you'll get a pretty good sense of what special weapons you might need to make your life easier, or even what aircraft might be better suited for a particular challenge. But at the end of the day, though, you want to make sure that you are constantly making money so you can use that to unlock new aircraft, and so you'll always have cash that you can spend on outfitting yourself with the best special weapons. What I found interesting about this game is that you can give yourself a decent advantage by using your hard-earned cash to buy special weapons and taking them into battle, But if you can become skilled enough and not have to rely on those special weapons to complete a mission, it's money that you'll get back or money that you will have saved if you didn't purchase any weapons at all. So at its core, high skill play is absolutely rewarded, but those that need to fall back on a special weapon or two won't feel ashamed to do so. Both behaviors here are absolutely encouraged and I think that really adds to the overall experience. So with all of that said, we've pretty much covered the general gist of UN Squadron. With more than one stage being made available to you after the first, you'll now have a bit of freedom when it comes to how you go about taking on the game. Your ultimate goal is to get to the Project 4 Fortress and take down the game's final big bad, but you'll need to put some work in to get yourself there. When it comes to the overall experience when you're playing UN Squadron, I can certainly see why a game like this would make it onto many lists of such high praise. Shoot 'em ups are a dime a dozen, and it's very easy for it to be clumped in with all the rest and lost. At its core, the idea that you can accumulate money to purchase new aircraft and weapons probably isn't all that unique by today's standards, like I said before, but the most successful games out there, at least the ones in my eyes, have a simple and addicting gameplay loop. I don't know about you, but when I play a video game, I want to make sure that I have fun above all else. But more than that, I want to make sure that the time I put into the experience is valued as well as respected. Now for you, if playing a shoot 'em up with the goal of just getting to the end of each level and eventually completing them all so you can see the credits roll is something that you're into, that is fantastic and it sounds awesome, and it's certainly something that I'm into from time to time. But for me, I like being able to see the time that I'm spending with the game put back into the experience in a meaningful way, especially if I'm going to be finding myself playing a game that is quite difficult. Even when you die in this game, you're still able to hang on to the cash that you've accumulated. So while it certainly sucks when you die and you have to play through an entire level all over again, at least you get to keep your spoils and use them to grow your fleet of ships. This enriched the entire experience for me, and I wasn't just trying to get through a level. I was building towards something. I was becoming more powerful as I went. And it certainly dulled the pain of death any time I died on a stage. I don't think I mentioned it before up to this point, but you have three lives when you start this game, and you'll have three continues that you can use when you run out of lives. So essentially, you have 12 chances to see this game through to the end. Each life has value and meaning in this game, and you're not just starting over from scratch every time. And again, that's another reason why I really, really enjoy this gameplay experience. But going back to the game's difficulty level, I did want to talk about that just for a little bit. And let me preface the following thoughts on the game's difficulty by again saying that, while I have played a lot of games in my day, I have never claimed to be very good at most of them, so this next argument may just be a moot point. Now, while I just got done saying that this game does a great job of being respectful of my time and I enjoy the gameplay loop, UN Squadron does get very difficult to the point where I found myself wanting to go yell at random strangers walking down the street for absolutely no reason. And I pride myself on controlling my temper while playing games, too, so that is saying something. So what is it that I'm trying to say here? The game itself isn't too bullet-hellish or anything. There's plenty of room for you to maneuver your aircraft around, and the enemy doesn't really flood the screen with tons and tons of projectiles, at least not all the time anyway. While most shoot-'em-ups tend to pile on the hazards and there's generally a lot of things flying around the screen, UN Squadron really only gets out of hand if you let it get out of hand. What I mean by that is, so long as you're constantly taking out threats when you see them, your screen won't get overly crowded. However, if you allow the enemy to swarm and they get a chance to launch gunfire or missiles at you, you're going to have a lot of things to dodge. I will say though, whenever I took damage it was usually due to a collision more so than taking damage from incoming enemy fire. The bad guys love swooping in from all sides of the screen, and unless you start memorizing attack patterns and when enemies will appear in each stage, you're going to get smacked around pretty good. When I was first learning level layouts and getting a feel for when enemies would be entering the battlefield, I was easily overwhelmed and I found myself frustrated very quickly. I would back away from an enemy force in front of me just to get rammed in the backside from a formation of enemy planes making their way in. But I want to make something abundantly clear. UN Squadron is certainly a hard game, but it's a game that does get easier the more you play it and the more that you practice at it. It's one of those tough but fair titles, and so long as you stick with it, you'll see yourself getting further and further with each playthrough and eventually you'll make your way to the end. And by that point, you're feeling pretty damn confident and pretty fulfilled. You're not just a better gamer at that point. You have become an ace pilot, and that is pretty damn cool. Overall, there are 12 stages in UN Squadron, if I counted correctly, as well as those bonus stages that you can take on where you take out the enemy convoys. Each stage has their own unique personality, and each brings a unique challenge to the table. Enemies will appear in the same spots at the same times every time you play through, so you can start to memorize their formations as you put more time into each stage. Some stages that you play through are going to be a mix of air and ground targets. Others are more air-focused, and others are more ground-focused. As you play through them, it'll be up to you to decide what aircraft is best suited for each stage and what special weapons have the best impact. But even then, the variety of planes and weapons almost encourage a level of experimentation as well. Or you can challenge yourself and see if you can truly become Area 88's best pilot. Want to take on a stage that has a ton of ground-based targets with the F-14 Tomcat, which has zero access to ground-based special weapons? Well, you can certainly do that if you are crazy enough. But beyond the waves of enemies in each stage, what makes each unique are the bosses that you fight at the end of them. Each boss encounter is very unique and requires specific tactics to take them out. They can be quite difficult when you face them for the very first time since you don't really know what it is that you're up against, but once you get a feel for how to defeat them, they aren't too bad. You'll still need to be quick on the trigger and you'll have to be mindful of moving around though. Of the different boss encounters, you'll come across things like a land-based aircraft carrier, an immobile super fortress, a squadron of stealth bombers, and even a submarine. Personally, I always like taking on the big fortress. These type of encounters require you to destroy the big core that's at the center of the fortress, but as you skim the surface, you'll have to contend with cannons and missile turrets that are trying to shoot you out of the sky. Once you do take out the core of the fortress and watch the entire thing get engulfed in flames, it is incredibly satisfying. The fight against the land-based aircraft carrier is pretty unique as well. There's a core that you need to destroy to wipe it out, however the carrier will be launching missiles at you while launching enemy fighters to try to take you out in the process. It sounds very hectic, and it is, and it requires a sort of precision to make sure that you put your aircraft just out of the way of incoming fires, so you can land hits on the carrier's core. Different bosses will require different tactics, and it really pushes you to constantly be thinking and evolving as a player. All of that said, there is a ton of variety in each stage, and they are not cookie cutter. Going through each stage just to see what kind of bosses at the end was something that I really found enjoyable, and once you learn how to master each of these bosses and make them your bitch, it is a fantastic cherry on top of the entire experience. Now there is a single stage and subsequent boss encounter that I genuinely disliked, however. I can't remember what stage it was specifically, but it was a later one that had you flying through a series of caves and caverns. The siege itself was a genuine challenge, requiring you to navigate through narrow passageways while all being accosted by enemies. But while all of the other boss encounters in this game allow for a degree of experimentation when figuring out how to defeat them, this boss encounter is very straightforward in such a way that you need a specific set of special weapons in order to win this fight. I don't know what this boss is called, but it's essentially attached to the top of the screen. There's a core that's visible, so it's fairly obvious what you need to shoot in order to damage the beast, but the core is tucked away so tightly that it's extremely difficult to maneuver your aircraft close to it and shoot it with conventional fire without smacking your plane into the sides of the boss and taking collision damage. You need the gun pod and the ceiling missile special weapons, since these will fire straight up. And the kicker here is the aircraft that allow you to equip these specific weapons are the two most expensive aircraft in the entire game, so you need to make sure that you've purchased one before going into this stage in order to have a fighting chance here. This part in the game right here is probably the one spot where I was genuinely pissed off at the game. Now if there is a way to beat this fight without these special weapons, I, in my limited knowledge, was not able to figure it out but once I did have the weapons that I needed, the fight was pretty easy. Generally speaking though, while I don't really care for boss encounters in video games in general, the ones done in UN Squadron are pretty fun, they are pretty engaging, and they are certainly challenging. Even despite this one roadblock when it comes to boss encounters, I genuinely enjoyed going up against the game's big bads. Figuring out how to best beat them and ultimately taking them down is genuinely satisfying and I could not help but smirk each time I came out on top. As I think back to everything that I've said about this game up to this point, I really hope I've done an okay job helping you visualize what this game is all about and why it's a step above the rest when it comes to other shoot-'em-ups on the Super Nintendo. Shooters like Gradius 3 on the SNES and even 1943 on the original Nintendo are practically shooter staples, but UN Squadron takes pieces from these games and I argue it improves upon most of them. Given the choices in aircraft, special weapons, and three distinct pilots all with a unique advantage over the other, there's plenty of replay value to be had here. I only briefly touched upon this in the beginning of the episode, but originally this game was an arcade game, and if we look at UN Squadron purely as an arcade port, it is probably one of the most faithful ones out there that I've played up to this point in my gaming career. Visually speaking, the game looks really good, and very rarely did I ever experience any sort of slowdown when multiple things were flying around on screen, though slowdowns do still exist from time to time. I really enjoyed the graphical presentation and I found the character models which were depicted in their traditional manga style to be very charming. UN Squadron is a licensed game at its core and I have to assume that's the reason this game really isn't found anywhere outside the arcade or anywhere outside the Super Nintendo and some of the more lesser known older systems. I'm not aware of any game collections that this game is included on on modern consoles right now, which should probably change Capcom if you happen to be listening to this. So because of all of that and the license limitations, UN Squadron is cursed to be lumped in with the many shoot 'em ups out there for now, and that's a real shame because I really think this game is a step above many of them. At the time of this recording, UN Squadron on the Super Nintendo isn't overly expensive as a loose cartridge if you can find one, and I think it absolutely deserves a spot in your gaming collection. Or if nothing else, I'm sure you're a resourceful enough person to figure out how to play this game. And take it from me, UN Squadron is a game that should absolutely be played. And with that, we've come to the end of episode 39 of the Retro Wildlands, UN Squadron for the Super Nintendo. Thank you very much for tuning into the show today, my friend. If you've made it this far, I cannot tell you how much I appreciate you giving me your time and listening to my podcast. It really does mean the world to me. I know a game like UN Squadron isn't the most well known or the most talked about, but I really wanted to highlight another lesser known video game that deserves some recognition. As a video gamer, while I find comfort in the games that I've known and have grown attached to as I've gotten older, I'm really enjoying going back and discovering something new and exciting. Journeying through the gaming wildlands and seeing something familiar is certainly fun, but sometimes it's making a brand new discovery that really ignites my passion as a gamer. All of that said though, I'm very happy to have had you on our expedition today so I could talk to you about one of these awesome discoveries. If you like the show and want to show it and myself some support, please consider subscribing to it on your preferred podcasting platform. I am currently at a point in my life where I'm finding it very difficult committing to a standard release schedule for the show right now, so following us on social media is going to be the best way that you can be notified the moment I drop something new. While episode output has slowed for the time being, the Retro Wildlands podcast is not going anywhere, so be sure to follow us so you can get notified anytime that we head into the Wildlands for some gaming adventures. We also have a presence over on social media as well. You can follow us over on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or YouTube if you want to hang out with us and see what's going on with the show. And you can also check out our new Linktree over at linktr.ee slash retrowildlands for all of the direct links in one easy-to-find place. Or you could just search us out on those individual social media platforms, however you want to find us. I generally post things on social media that involve my gaming collection, I'll toss some things out that are gaming related, or maybe throw in a photo of my adorable puppies for your viewing pleasure. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, head on over to our socials if you want to add just a little bit of Retro Spice to your timelines and feeds. So what's coming up next? Well, to be completely honest with you all, I am not entirely sure. I have a small pile of games that I've completed or I've recompleted lately for the show, so it's just a matter of deciding on which one I want to sit down and prepare a show for. Games like Super Mario World, Tomb Raider, Resident Evil 4, Silent Hill 2, Luigi's Mansion, and Super Mario Kart are all on the docket just to give you a small sampling. Plus, I'm really enjoying putting together top 10 lists for some of my favorite video game things. Some ideas I have for future Top 10 lists include my Top 10 Favorite Video Game Dogs, Top 10 Mini Games, Top 10 Favorite Video Game Soundtracks, Top 10 Gaming Pet Peeves, and much more. I'm very excited to put together the next episode of the podcast, and I am equally as excited to share it with you, so be on the lookout. I really do appreciate the patience that you've all given me lately, especially since I've had to pull back how often I can make these shows. I still believe in the quality of the show that I'm putting together for you all and I don't want to sacrifice that. And if you've listened this far into this show, hopefully that quality means something to you too. So stay tuned my friends, as we keep making our way into the gaming wildlands, I would be absolutely honored if you would consider joining us for our next adventure. Until then my friends, my name is Nomad and you can find me… Roaming the Retro Wildlands.